Corinthians chapter 12, starting at verse 7. It's on page 970 for using that blue Bible. Now, Paul had problems in Corinth, and one of the problems he had, and he had, a, and you see it both in 1st and 2nd Corinthians, is he had uh, the problem of the fact that there were lots of golden-haired speakers, orators, rhetoricians that the Corinthian Christians were enamored with. And one of the, apparently, one of the traits of their oratory is that they bragged about their visions and es- uh, ecstatic experiences, and for whatever reason, people gave that a lot of street cred. So starting in chapter 12, Paul finally begrudgingly mentions that he saw some things too. Things that are inexpressible, things that are incommunicable. But then Paul says this starting at verse 7, and you will notice that once he says this, this goes totally opposite to those whom you've heard on TV and radio bragging about visions. Listen to what a gospel-wrought person says. 2 Corinthians 12, starting at verse 7, So to keep me from becoming conceited. Because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should, that it should leave me. But He said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. And now I turn to 2 Chronicles, 2 Chronicles chapter 14, and that's page 368. This is where we will be today in our series through 1 and 2 Chronicles, Reclaim, Revive, Reform, return. Second Chronicles chapter 14. Rehoboam is now gone, Abijah is now gone, and now comes Asa in his reign. And so, notice Asa, starting at verse 1. Abijah slept with his fathers, and they buried him in the city of David. And Asa, his son, reigned in his place. In his days, the land had rest for ten years. And Asa did what was good and right in the eyes of the Lord. Capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, Lord. That's the translator's code to remind you this is God's personal name here in the Hebrew, Yahweh. And so he did what was good and right in the eyes of Yahweh, his, his God. He took away the foreign altars and the high places and broke down the pillars and cut down the asherim. And he commanded Judah to seek the Lord, to seek Yahweh, the God of their fathers, and to keep the law and the commandments. He also took out of all the cities of Judah the high places and the incense altars. And the kingdom had rest, that's been said twice, under him. He built fortified cities in the land of in Judah, for the land had rest, now said three times. He had no war in those years, for the Lord, Yahweh, gave him peace said once, and after he, and he said to Judah, let us build these cities and surround them with walls and towers and gates and bars. The land is still ours because we have sought the Lord, Yahweh, our God. We have sought Him, and He has given us peace, now said twice, on every side. So they built and prospered, and Asa had an army of 300,000 from Judah, armed with large shields and spears, and 280,000 men from Benjamin that carried shields 
and drew bows. All these were mighty men of valor. Zerah the Ethiopian came out against him with an army of a million men and 300 chariots and came as far as Marashad. Asa went out to meet him and they drew up their lines of battle in the valley of Zephathah at Marashah. And Asa cried to the Lord, to Yahweh, his God. Yahweh, there is none like you to help. Between the mighty and the weak, help us, O Lord, O Yahweh, our God, for we rely on you, and in your name we have come against this multitude. O Lord, O Yahweh, you are our God. Let not man prevail against you. So the Lord, Yahweh, defeated the Ethiopians before Asa and before Judah, and the Ethiopians fled, and Asa and the people who were with With him pursued them as far as Gerar, and the Ethiopians fell until none remained alive, for they were broken before Yahweh, before the Lord and his army. And the men of Judah carried away very much spoil, and they attacked the cities, all the cities around Gerar. For the fear of the Lord, the fear of Yahweh was upon them, and they plundered all the cities, for there was much plunder in them, and they struck down the tents of those who had livestock and carried away sheep and and the abundance and camels, and they returned to Jerusalem. What I read to you from 2 Corinthians 12 and from 2 Chronicles 14, it is the corrective, but it is also the encouraging, hope-giving word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Oh Lord God, these things are examples written down for our instruction upon whom the end of the ages has come. Your Apostle Paul said that. And so bring this story into our hearts at newer and deeper levels. Amen. You may be seated. So if you're visiting and don't know, and those of you who do know, the sermon notes, the outline is on the back of a worship guide. Lots of space there for notes for you to write things. And then there's some questions for your care groups as they meet tonight at the very end. Now, my friends, I want you to remember that all of these stories in Second Chronicles now, all of these stories are preaching one sermon to us. And the sermon is the good news of chapter 7, verse 14. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from the wicked way, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sins and heal their land. Every one of these episodes is preaching to us that sermon on that passage from this point on, giving us loads of examples of the various traits that are listed there in 2 Chronicles 7.14, whether it's humility or prayer or seeking God's face, etc. Some of the stories that we'll read in the rest of 2 Chronicles will give us negative examples of how God's people sometimes refused God's health-giving prescription and the end result. And so Asa's story, which covers chapter 14, 15, and 16. Yes, we are going to spend three weeks on Asa. So Asa's story, chapter 14, 15, and 16, taken together, is all about God's people humbled, praying, and seeking His face. So chapter 14 starts us out by showing us the reforming heart of Asa. Verses 1 through 8 
the reforming heart of Asa. Notice how it begins. It tells us, yes, that Abijah's father has died and was buried. And then it says, and Asa's son reigned. And in his days, the land had rest for 10 years. And Asa did what was good and right in the eyes of the Lord, of Yahweh his God. And so that statement and all, really, the verses 1-8 through eight are really an overview of all of Asa's good years. So when it says, and Asa did what was good and right in the eyes of the Lord, in the eyes of Yahweh, it's not saying that in every iota, every item that he did, he always did what was right and pleasing to God. Because we need to get to chapter 16 in a few weeks, and you'll see that there's a big letdown in chapter 16. Right, So the Bible doesn't believe in, I'm going to say this, the Bible does not believe in, does not teach, does not preach, does not have any categories for something like entire sanctification. That you can be holy, perfectly holy now. That day's coming, praise the Lord. They just sang about it and the choir, the choir just sang about that longing, right? That day's coming. But for now, even the most wholesome people are pretty messy. So that statement, he did what was good and right in the eyes of the Lord, in the eyes of Yahweh, is an overarching general statement in all these things here that are listed. And what you'll notice in verses 1-8 through is you will notice that there is an immediately sharp contrast. Chapter Verse 2, there's a sharp contrast. He did what was good and right in the sight of the Lord is in total stark contrast with his grandfather. So just look back up to chapter 12, verse 14. And what was his grandfather noticed for? Robum noticed for? He did evil in the sight of the Lord because he did not set his heart to seek the Lord. We've come to a sharp contrast already. To begin, that sharp contrast is seen very easily when you take a bird's eye view of all of chapter 14, 15, and 16. If Roboam, his grandfather, did not set his heart to seek the Lord, it's a very stark contrast that it says over seven times, over seven times in verse chapter 14, 15, and 16, that Asa and the people sought the Lord. It's meant to be, this is a phenomenal moment. Unlike all the, their forebears before them, Abijah and Roboam, Asa and his people sought the Lord. So there's the first easy-to-see sharp contrast. And that's one of the traits that's mentioned in God's prescription. If my people call by my name, will humble themselves and pray and seek my face. Further, the sharp contrast is seen in what Asa is facing as he comes into power. It's right there in verse 3 and verse 5. Remember how Abijah, his daddy, bragged back up in chapter 13, verse 10 and 11. Wow, we've never forsaken the Lord, y'all. Right? Remember him saying that? He says it twice. Right? And yet, what does Asa find in the cities of God's people, in the southern realm of the kingdom, that he has to remove? What does he find? He finds foreign altars. Oh, there's alternative worship spaces inside of the kingdom. Hmm, that doesn't sound right. Oh my goodness, there are high places, places where you could go and, and you could offer sacrifices to various deities. There are pillars in Asherim. Those are phallic symbols for those of you who understand that language of alternative gods, like Asherah was Baal's girlfriend and there was a fertility cult. You got all that. I don't have to get too detailed, right? This is what he's finding in the southern realm of God's kingdom, where his daddy had just said, why, we've never forsaken the Lord. 
Now look at what he has faced. There's a huge contrast between Asa's reign and even his own daddy's reign and his grandfather. And so, my friends, the reforming, the reforming heart of Asa is authentic, it is genuine. And there are a couple of proofs of this. First off, there's this broad eviction of all the competition, removing the foreign altars, the high places, the pillars, the asherim. Asa is removing, he's evicting all of the competitors. Inside of God's kingdom, he is removing all the competitors to the Lord. Asa is not looking to the nations around God's kingdom to get his standard of approval of having achieved spiritual, uh, I don't know, uh, high, high, high points or something. He's not looking around him to get what they think. When he removes, he evicts all competitors. Why would he do that? Because... Asa knows the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He knows that the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Yahweh, is not into spiritual multiculturalism. He's not into spiritual multiculturalism inside of his kingdom. God's bells do not ring with excitement over coexist. God is not jazzed and He is not juiced up over religious tolerance. And specifically and most pointedly, in His kingdom. Rather, Asa knew that Yahweh was el Kanah. It's two words. It's in the Hebrew. But this concept shows up even over in Hebrews chapter 10. He is el god Kanah, Q-A-N-A, jealous. He is the jealous God. Now, we don't like to hear that language. In fact, for some reason, in modern American culture, we actually think jealousy is a sin or something. I, it's weird. I remember sitting down with a brand new couple. They'd been married about six months or so. And they came to me. They were wringing their hands because the wife was jealous. And she felt like she was sinning for being jealous of her husband. And he felt like she was sinning for being jealous of him. And I was like, really? Wow, that's interesting. First off, God is jealous, so jealousy can't be a sin in and of itself, right? I mean, unless you want to say God is a sinner. Oh, I would never do that. Okay, good. So we know jealousy in and of itself is not a sin. So why are you jealous? Well, he's treating his co-workers, his female co-workers, like he's not married. Are you doing that? Well, well, yeah. Dude! You're sinning, not your wife. She is right to be jealous. Do you get it? what I'm saying? I'm, it was an illustration, if you didn't know. Right? That's Elkanah. He is jealous God. The God who loves His people intensely and loyally and committedly will not allow for us to have other lovers. Just like your wife, just like your husband, who loves you too much to permit you to engage in marital tolerance or marital coexistence. Right? He loves you too much to allow competitors. And so Asa knows that, and he shows that he knows that, and he is all on board with the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. 
He shows his sincerity, his genuineness, doing what his father and probably his grandfather never would have done. He closes the doors inside of God's kingdom. He closes the doors to all competition, thus ensuring his own and his people's single-minded affections and loyalty. And with his single-minded affections and loyalty, there comes, and I tried to emphasize it in the reading, there comes three um, there comes three outcomes, if you will, or three results. One of them is said three times, and one is said twice. There's rest, rest, rest. And there's peace, and there's peace. Amazing. It's intriguing. Is that those two qualities put together as a symbol of someone's reign is what shows up over in First Chronicles 22, when God promises David, I will set up one of your sons to be on your throne. His name will be Peace Boy, Shlomo, Solomon. In his day, he will, I will give him rest and he will have peace. Well, now Asa's not Solomon. But the writer is telling you that Asa's reign, because of his outright commitment to the Lord, allowing no competitors inside of God's kingdom, that during Asa's reign, it was almost like the glory days back when Solomon was in power. It was times of peace and rest and rest and rest and peace. Just emphasizing that Asa was on the right track, the right trail. Another overall proof of his genuineness is that he leads corporate reformation. The whole body is involved. Here's the leadership leading the way, influencing, coordinating, reinforcing reformation. But unlike Rehoboam, his grandfather, and Abijah's father, whose hearts were not into God and not into God's ways, the natural flow of reform here is from Asa's own reforming heart outward. He has a reforming heart. He's willing to show it. He's doing that. And that then results in this outward show that impacts the community. Starts inside and it works outside. That's, that's the point. It's very much the way David puts it in Psalm 51. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Start here. Right? Start here. And that's what's going on with Asa. I think there's a lesson there for us because unfortunately, American Christians, that's my biggest context, it's the one that I know the best, American Christians think that we need to export everything, right? We need to get our country in shape, we need to enforce laws, we need to do all these things, and there's truth to all of that. But then the very things they want to enforce, when you look inside of the North American church, you go, we're a train wreck. What in the world are you doing trying to legislate something you don't even do yourself? And so, that's what's potent about this. This whole reforming aspect starts from Asa's reforming heart. And it works out. And so the Spirit guided his story, and once the people of God then in the three, mid-300 B.C., as he's writing to them, and he wants God's people now to stop looking around 
at all of the nations to get our standard of approval of what is the epitome of spirituality and instead to have a heart aflame for God, a heart aflame for God. So I want to ask you a very pointed question. Don't answer me. But do you have a reforming heart, a heart aflame for God that allows no competitors Do you have a reforming heart? And so the first eight verses show us the reforming heart of Asa. And you would think, especially if you think that God's religion is quid pro quo, a little bit of my this for his great big O that, you might think if you are captured by a modern folk religion, why only good things happen to good people, you know what I'm saying? That's folk, part of folk religion, right? You would think, after all these wonderful things in verses 1 through 8, you would think God would be so happy. Oh, I'm so delighted that Asa's on my team and he's actually doing some good things. Why, I'm just not going to let anything bad happen to him. You would think that he would not allow anything stressful to happen. But notice what happens starting at verse 9. The reforming heart is going to be put to the test. The reforming heart is going to be put to the test. And it's verses 9 through 15. Right after all of those 10 years where there's rest, 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 and peace, peace, and all this reforming going on, all of a sudden comes Zerah the Ethiopian with his million men and his 300 super cool fighting machines that Asa apparently doesn't have. So he's outgunned again, he's outmanned, and all of that. And the reason why Zerah would want Asa's turf is because if you know the geography of the area, if you live down in North Africa and Ethiopia and Egypt and there, if you need to go north, if you want commerce to happen from the north for Mesopotamia, if you want to go conquer Mesopotamia, you can only go through this little piece, sliver of land that Israel and Judah have. They're the bottleneck of all commerce, going from north to south, and they're the bottleneck for all military movements. So if you want to be the top dog, you've got to capture this region. So here's Zerah, probably has taken over Egypt. He's an Ethiopian, probably taken over Egypt. And now he gathers his troops, and he shows up to take over this region, and lo and behold, the situation favors who? Who does the situation favor? Looking at verse 9. The Ethiopians. Right? Asa's got 580,000 men the Ethiopian, Zerah the Ethiopian has a million men. It, we're back to another two-to-one situation. Just like Abijah faced in chapter 13, verse 3. Two-to-one. Once more, my friends, these are insurmountable odds. These are impossible. This is an impossible situation. There's really no way for him to win I'm sure he, there were voices of plenty within his own rank and file saying, come on, we need to come up with some kind of treaty or something because we're going to get decimated. We're going to get wiped off the face of the earth. I mean, defeat is clearly imminent. It is an impossible situation. When you come to verse 19, or verse 9 and, and, and prepare to walk into verse 8, you, you start having these questions. What in the world is Asa going to do? Is his reforming heart that he showed in verses 1-8, through eight, was it shallow? Was it flash in the pan? Now that there's, a, there's trials and, and tribulations, will it melt away? 
And so here in the midst of the trial, Asa's faith, his reforming heart, shines forth in his prayer. Look at his prayer. Asa cried. He cried to Yahweh. Notice the God he's calling out to. Yahweh is God. Names are important. Right? This is not some innocuous God out there, some civil, civil religion God. This is a specific God, Yahweh, who is known by Yahweh, who has made covenant in the name of Yahweh, who wants His people to call Him Yahweh. Yahweh. And whose God is He? Yahweh is God. Yahweh is God. Notice how personal this is. Asa cries to Him. Yahweh is God. And what does he say? Oh, Yahweh, there is none like you. Baal's not like you. His girlfriend Asherah is not like you. Zeus is not like you. Ra from Egypt is not like you. Marduk from the Mesopotamians is not like you. There is no God like you who can help between the mighty and the weak. I mean, he's drawing the line in the sand. He is banking everything upon this God. In fact, he goes on to say, help us, O Yahweh, our God. We just spent verses 1-8, through ten years, making sure that you are Yahweh, our God. Help us, O Yahweh, our God, for we rely on you. And in your name, we rely on you, and in your name we have come against this multitude. In your name, under your authority, submitting to you, we come against this multitude. O Yahweh, you are our God. Do not let man prevail against you. I find it interesting. He doesn't say, oh God, be on our side. He says, Lord, we're on your side. Did you hear the difference? He doesn't say, God, be on our side. He says, Lord, we're on your side. And so then, at the end of his prayer, it's a very interesting twist. Let not man prevail against whom? Verse 11. Everybody look, I want an answer. Let not man prevail against you. Isn't that interesting? We're on your side. Come what may, we may be defeated, but don't let man prevail against you. Oh, Ace's reforming heart and his faith shines through this prayer. His prayer shows that he knows. He knows God, that he submits to God, that he submits to God's directions, that he is seeking the face of God. His prayer reveals that his, he, that his is a reforming heart. And even though it is being put to the test, it is still a loyal heart. And so what does Asa do? Verse 12, he jumps into the fray. He goes into the combat, humble. He and his people, they go into it, into the fray, humble, praying, seeking God's face. They enter the fray, come what may. Their faith is not based on outcomes. Their faith is based on who God is, who He really is. And lo and behold, just as God promised back in chapter 7, 14, the Lord stands ready to hear, forgive and to heal. And he answers Asa's prayer in this impossible circumstance, in this impossible situation. He answers Asa's prayer with an exclamation point. Verse 12, verse 13, then verses 14 and 15. Verse 12, so Yahweh defeated. Who, who did? Who defeated 
the, Egypt, the Ethiopians? Yeah, the Lord, right? Yahweh. Yahweh defeated the Ethiopians before Asa, before Judah, and the Ethiopians fled. In fact, verse 13, they were so defeated, it says they were broken before Yahweh and His army. I find that interesting. Because God rarely identifies with any group of people. There's really only one group that God ever puts any close identity to. His people. Right? Jesus tells us that, right? When, when, for example, when Saul was persecuting the church and Jesus shows up, what does Jesus say to Saul? Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he didn't say he identifies with everybody else or any other specific group. It's only his people. And notice then, they're on his side, right? They've submitted themselves to him. They want to do what God wants them to do. They're seeking the face of God. And so God breaks the Ethiopians before the Lord and before his army. He's answering Asa's prayer with a big exclamation point. And then verses 14 and 15, all that sacking and burning, assuming that that probably means that those regions down south had aligned themselves with Zerah the Ethiopian. And so it means it's a total defeat. The Ethiopians lose and they lose big. The Lord answers Asa's prayer with an exclamation point. And it's here in this answer that we see who the true reforming hero is. Asa, as big and as important as Asa is or was, and he was, as much as he was a great guy, and he was, as much as he was a super role model, and he was, until you get to chapter 16 and then there's a huge letdown, there's someone else here who is the real hero and there is no letdown. It's the God of verse 11. The God who is seen in all of the blood and gore and smoke and ash and dust and sweat and decimation of verses 12 through 15. But He's the one who is victorious when it all looks impossible. He is the one whose strength is perfected in our weakness. He is the one who is valiant when we are quaking in our fear. That's really the point of chapter 14. That our faith should be in Him, not in our political might, not in our military precision, not in our master-mindedness, not in our, in our large numbers or impressive circumstances, not in our glitz and not in our glamour. Our faith is to be in this God. It's to be in Him. There's no God like you who could do something like this in the most impossible circumstances. There's no one like you. And we throw ourselves all in with you. Faith is to be in this God. And that's how we now see it even after the cross. This is God's Word for God's people even after the cross. How do I know that? What did... Paul say when we were reading 2 Corinthians. Anybody notice that there's actually some connections? I wonder if Paul didn't have this prayer in mind or Jesus, one of the two. So to keep me from becoming conceited because of 
the surpassing greatness of revelations, a thorn, a disease, or whatever it was, was given to me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in where? Weakness. Well, if we're going to sit around and boast, I'll tell you what, I'll just boast in this, Paul goes on to say. I'll boast in my weakness then, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Here, even after the cross, we look back at 2 Chronicles chapter 14, and especially verse 11, and we go, hey, that's Jesus! Hey, that's God's Word, even for us today! Our strength is not in some kind of victorious Christian life filled with some kind of painless perfection. Instead, dear friends, in this real world of pain, in this real world of exhaustion, in this real world of miscarriages, in this real world of mental illnesses, in this world, this real world of defeat, of exploitation, of desertions, and of overwhelming odds. It is Christ who rises up. He raises us up. And He holds us up in His nail-pierced hands. Look at the cross. And you will see God. You will see the God that Asa is praying to in chapter 14, verse 11. That he trusted in. You will see that God in the flesh. Entering body, blood, bones, heart, and soul into our defeat. Into our disenfranchisement into our debility, into our dispiritedness, but also entering fully into our filthy vileness and our soiled condition. He made Him who knew no sin to become sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. And in His own death at the cross, this God that Asa trusted in, destroyed their power. And three days later, he rose from the dead. Body, blood, bones, toenails, and hair, no longer subject to misery and mortality. He rises from the dead to do what? To carry us into his life. To carry us deep into his white-hot love. To carry us into his triumph. And though we get to that triumph being carried there by Jesus, we get there by coming with Him through the gore of the cross. Yet He still carries us, even through the gore of the cross, to the glory of His crown. And so as the psalmist said, and you heard it this morning, it was the call to worship. As the psalmist said in Psalm 121, I look at my eyes to the hills. From whence does my help come? I lift up my eyes to my IRA. From whence does my help come? I lift up my eyes to the White House. 
from whence does my help come? I lift up my eyes to all alternative powers that say that they are divine or have more power than anything else. I lift up my eyes to Joe Biden, to Donald Trump. From whence does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. Dear friends, where are you looking? To whom are you looking? Oh, lift up your eyes, lift up your heart, and throw yourself into the arms of the one who can do the impossible. The one who can carry you through the imminent defeats. Jesus. Jesus, the eternal Son of God who became flesh and so was and continues to be one God, uh, God and man and two distinct natures and one person forever. But this Jesus, not the folk religion Jesus that you can buy a dime a dozen, but this Jesus ends up being far more than we can hope for. Yet we must give up control. We must give up our heart's desires to be the saviors of the world. We must give up our sense of being entitled to wealth, health, prominence, and power. And it's then, when our utter confidence is in Him and not in anything else, that we can then enter the fray, come what may. My friends, that's what we're going to be singing at the end of the service today. It's hymn number 449. If you want to flip there, I'm going to read some of the verses here right now. It's an extended meditation on 2 Chronicles 14.11. We rest on Thee our shield and our defender. We go not forth alone against the foe. Strong in thy strength, safe in thy keeping tender. We rest on thee, and in thy name we go. Yes, in thy name, O captain of salvation, in thy dear name, all other names above. Jesus, our righteousness, our sure foundation, our prince of glory and our King of love. We go in faith, our own great weakness feeling, and needing more each day, thy grace to know. Yet from our hearts, a song of triumph pealing, we rest on thee, and in thy name we go. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that you would be with each and every one of us as we look at this reforming heart of Asa and realize the one in whom he had confidence in and who you are. Lord, it's not profitable in our time. It's not going to make lots of money. It's not going to get big names or any of that. But we come to you recognizing that sometimes we put all of our confidence in all the wrong places. So Lord, I pray for each and every one of us that there would be a reforming heart, a heart aflame for God that allows for no competitors. And then from that, we would go forth, not tr- strutting through the countryside, thumping our chests, 
But we would go forth, as the song says, in faith, our own great weakness feeling, needing more each day thy grace to know. We would go forward, confident in you, and jump into the phrase we need to, confident in you, come what may. I pray, Lord, for anyone here this day who finds that they have actually been looking at competitors. Who finds themselves having been dabbling with the fertility gods of our day. The power gods of our day. That you would bring about, Lord, a whole remake in their hearts. And they would be whole hog for you. We thank you that we can trust you and that there is no other God like you. And we are yours and you are our God. In Jesus' name, amen.